It is a privilege for me to be with you this evening, and I want to just express my appreciation to the Founders Ministries and for what you guys stand for, for Tom Askell, a dear friend of mine, and for the rest of the board and how we have heard already through this conference that these men are faithful brothers who stand uh, without blushing upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and aren't afraid to take on serious issues like this very issue in which we face in the history of the church in our present day. So thank you, dear brothers. I'm very grateful to call you friends and for the privilege to stand and to address this conference this evening. If you would take your copy of God's Word and open to Ephesians chapter number 2. Ephesians chapter 2, my assignment this evening is to... Uh, speak on the subject of the unifying power of the cross. The unifying power of the cross. And so I'm going to begin to read in verse number 11 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. You follow along with me as I read down to verse 22. And once again, this is the word of the living God. And it reads as follows. Therefore, remember that at one time you... Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants and promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in him. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. And may God add blessing to the reading of His Word. Would you pray with me at this time? Now, Father, we come before Your throne. Having now read a portion of Holy Scripture. And look to Your Word for comfort and strength. Edification to be built up in the faith by the Holy Spirit. And as we think about this entire conference and as we think about this entire controversy by the name of social justice, our hearts are grieved. Grieved at the attack on the church, grieved at the division between brother and sister in Christ, grieved at all of the confusion. And so we plead even now, O oh God, that you would bring light to this entire controversy. That you would cause faithful men and women to have resolve, to stand firm. Not to sit down and not to be quiet, but to stand firm with confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh God, would you bring about unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace even within the Southern Baptist Convention, and even within the, the broader evangelical circles. Oh God, this is your church. 
And we pray for your church tonight. And we ask and plead for restoration of friendships, restoration of alignment with institutions and organizations so that we can be about the business of preaching the gospel to the nations and planting churches and seeing souls saved and lives transformed and guilt removed. Oh God, through the gospel, may our hearts be warmed and encouraged and strengthened. And may you cause us to be people of the book, to stand without flinching in this hour. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Martin Luther King once said these famous words in his speech, I have a dream. He said, quote, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. He goes on and says that one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today, he said, end quote. Well, if you're not living your life under a rock, then you'll note that we are living in great days of division within evangelicalism on issues related to a multifaceted, multilayered, various different uh, controversy that we know as social justice. Now, as we think about these divisions, many of these divisions are centered on issues related to oppression. Oppression, they say, and injustice to women. Or uh, issues related to gay Christianity. And so many other layers. And so the social justice train, the social justice agenda is very complex. But one of the greatest issues of division is centered on the issue of ethnic division or racism. There's an awful lot of charges that are being thrown around at people today. Sometimes, I believe, way too casually, they're throwing these terms and these charges around, centering on white privilege and systemic racism and white supremacy. And as we think about these very issues, we turn now to the Word of God and we look for hope and strength and encouragement to find answers to be able to find our way and to navigate, if you will, through the fog. Last June, a group of men, and myself included, Tom Askell and others in this room, met in Dallas, Texas for what has now become known as the Summit on Social Justice and the Gospel. And emerging from that very meeting was what we now know as the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. And over these last 11 months or so since we've met And now again, just not quite a year since the statement has been released, there have been all sorts of attacks that have been hurled towards us, the framers of this statement. Statements and charges and accusations of racism and white supremacy and all of these very vicious attacks and filled with slander, divisive language. But interestingly enough, if you think about these, these slanderous remarks and these accusations, they, they're not coming from atheists and agnostics. They're not coming from Muslims and other heretical groups. They're coming from within the church of Jesus Christ. The most vile and hate-filled slander has been hurled towards us by professing brothers and sisters in Christ. The deepest and most severe and most damaging accusations on social media have come from those who claim to be a part of the family of faith, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Not long ago, I was asked to write an article at Founders Blog on the issue of race and the gospel. And I wrote that article, and little did I know, soon thereafter, my life would become far more exciting with all of the different things that were coming my way and private messages and emails and social media hashtags. And one such individual uh, reposted one of my statements on social media, on Twitter, and just called me a racist. I clicked on his name and found that he's actually a Christian counselor who specializes in racial trauma counseling. I thought maybe I'll need his services pretty soon. (laughs) 
So then I called Tom Askell and I was on the phone complaining about all of these accusations and all the things that were going on and, and uh, just complaining about the charges of racism and white supremacy and white privilege and all of this. And he's been hit with a, a lot of it as well. I asked if he had had a lot of emails related to the article that I wrote. He said yes. And, uh, and that and other articles that have been going out and things that have been stated. And so after I belly ached and complained and griped to him about all of this, I said, you know, I'm just going to blame you for this uh, on, in, in my life, you know. And, and then soon thereafter, he chuckled and he asked me if I would preach on that very subject in this conference. I'm a glutton for punishment, maybe, but several months ago, Eric Mason released a book titled Woke Church. In that book, he makes the following bold assertion. He says, quote, To apply this, we must be awakened to the reality of implicit and explicit racism and injustice in our society. Until then, our prophetic voice on these matters will be anemic and silent. Being woke is to be aware. Being woke is to acknowledge the truth. Being woke is to be accountable. Being woke is to be active. This is the call of God on the church and on every believer, end quote. To make the claim that the mission of the church is to be woke is at best to be guilty of false advertising and at worst is to be guilty of egregious sin and mission drift. Jesus was not a social justice warrior. He came as the Savior of sinners, very God of very God, to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus was not woke, and the church of Jesus Christ does not need the the title woke attached to it. In fact, this very term woke emerges from the black nationalist movement as an urban colloquialism. Needless to say, when you attach woke to church, it turns into something very different than what Jesus had in mind when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So our identity must be in Jesus. Years ago, the most popular verse of Scripture to be quoted in our culture was John 3.16. In recent history, it was replaced by Matthew 7.1, Judge not lest you be judged. I'm fearful that today we're living in an age where the new John 3.16 is Micah 6.8. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Unfortunately, that is a Bible verse. But as well as Matthew 7.1, it's often twisted into something very different than what God has in mind. You see, I don't know anyone in this room, and, and I don't know anyone among the original framers of the statement on social justice that does not believe in biblical justice. We absolutely believe that it is our duty, it is our obligation to be people who uphold justice. Because our God is a just God. But social justice is a movement that is centered on redistribution of wealth. It is a movement that is so complex and and yet it wants to focus on victimology and, and equality of opportunity and advancement in our culture at large. But also, that has moved its way over into the church. It's built on a postmodern framework of deconstructionism, the idea to dethrone power structures, to move people out of the way, to put people in the seats of power and authority that we agree with. The basic image of social justice, if you were to go to Google Images, is a raised, clenched fist, demanding equality, demanding a seat at the table. This hyper-focus on the need for racial reconciliation has caused many in our day to make severe accusations and demands for repentance that has resulted in great division rather than great unity. And this is true both outside the church and inside the church. So this should concern us because it is quite clear that much of what is being argued and pressed upon the church is not biblical. It emerges from an old classical liberalism and a postmodern framework of deconstructionism and is interested in dethroning power and hierarchies and replacing those with people of their own choosing. So when we think about how large the Southern Baptist Convention is, we would be fooling ourselves to believe that there are not leftist political operatives that are not interested in turning the ship ever so slightly to tip the election in the favor of liberals politically, and they have agendas to harm the church of Jesus Christ. 
and to harm this nation that we call America. J.C. Ryle once said, whenever a man takes upon himself to make additions to the Scriptures, he is likely to end with valuing his own additions above Scripture itself. When we get to Ephesians chapter number 2, we see this glorious letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the city of Ephesus. And it was a circular letter, so it would have been used in other cities and other churches in those various cities to encourage them in the faith. But one of the things that we see here in chapter 2 is this issue of division. The Jews had refused to accept the Gentiles as equals, as brothers and sisters in Christ. This was a major issue that had to be dealt with. And so what Paul communicates to the church here in the city of Ephesus, we must take note of and apply it to the great divisions that we face in our present age. There are two things that I want to point out this evening. And the first is, as Paul speaks here in this very text, he points to the fact that the Gentiles were separated from God and covenant privileges. We see that in verses 11 and 12. And then in verses 13 to 22, we see that Paul focuses on the fact that the Gentiles were saved through Jesus Christ and then united together with Jews through the ministry of Jesus' cross. And so as we think about the division that they face and the division that we face, let us find great encouragement in the truth of the word of the living God. So first, Gentiles were separated from God and covenant privileges. In other words, if you look at the statement in verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. In other words, they were separated from God. To be separated from Christ is to be separated from God. And so the Jews understood that they were the chosen ones of God. God did not choose Israel because they were great in number, or because they were great in power, or because they were great in wisdom. God chose Israel in order to show His glory among the nations, and to humiliate the nations by showing His power. The Jews would over time become very arrogant and prideful. The Jews were known as the circumcision which is the sign of the covenant with God. They were separated unto God. They looked down upon the Gentiles, the non-Jews, as the uncircumcision. They were looked upon as savages, rebels, as unholy people and pagan people. The title uncircumcision was no compliment. It was a term of derision. And so the position of the Gentile is, as Paul states, was far off. He, he's talking about their, their time before their salvation. They were far off. In other words, they did not have the light. They had limited access to God. And they certainly were far away from the covenants and the promise. Most importantly, they were outside of hope, far off from Christ. Most Gentiles, that was in essence a summary of their life. They grew up in homes and in certain civilizations and certain cities and certain places where they were far off from God. They were pagans. They worshipped pagan gods. In fact, if you think about Ephesus here, you have a church in the middle of a very vile city. Paul writes to this church to encourage them. But if you think about what he says about being far off, think about how vile Ephesus was. Ephesus was located in the, on the central coastal region, you might say, of modern-day Turkey. It had four main roads that came together in different uh, areas there, which made it a, a gateway to Asia. Ephesus had been described as the vanity fair of the ancient world. And Paul had evangelized this city and then used it as a base of operation for about three years as God would raise up a church there. But the city itself was the de facto capital of the Roman province of Asia because the governor resided there. And it was an important city because of three main factors. First being trade. It was on the coast and it had these Roman roads that intersected there which made it a, a hotbed for commerce and for trade and for industry. Second of all, it was uh, really well known for athletics. The city of Ephesus was the home to a great theater which was able to seat upwards of 25,000 people and they had uh, uh, ancient competitions much like our Olympic Games. But then number three, Ephesus was known as a city of worship. 
It was a city of worship because the city of Ephesus was really centered around the temple of Artemis or the false goddess known as Diana. The temple was filled with a shrine and a bank. The goddess Diana was a multi-breasted idol that was said to have fallen from heaven. They would engage in worship to this false god or this goddess through temple prostitution. It was a vile city full of empty idols. And yet it was here that one philosopher said, no one could live in Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. This is why Paul stood so firmly upon the need for Timothy and his dying words, literally, to say, preach the word. Notice he didn't say preach reparations or preach intersectionality. Preach the word. They were separated from God. They were separated from the covenant privileges of the Jews. When people are separated from God, they have likewise been separated from God's chosen people. Interestingly enough, if you think about the Jewish people, they were a privileged people. Entrusted with the oracles of God, recipients of the covenants and the promise, led by the patriarchs and the prophets. And eventually, we see this privilege came to pride. That was something that the early church had a massive problem with. And the Jews still viewed the Gentiles as unequal. Hence the need for Paul to to pen this very letter. And to provide these corrective statements here in chapter 2. At one time, the Gentiles, before their salvation, they were alienated. They were far off. And they were certainly not unified with the Jews. Remember, the Jews would walk around Samaria if they were traveling north to south, because they viewed the people as compromisers, as half-breeds who had broken the covenant of God. But if you'll remember the words of Jesus in John 4, when He met a woman at the well, He literally uh, was talking with her, and she wanted to engage Him about worship. And Jesus said these words, He said, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. James Montgomery Boyce writes and says, This was not a racial slur, but a sober fact of salvation history. God had chosen to be known in Israel as He had chosen to be known nowhere else. In other words, the privileges and the promise and the covenants became something of Jewish pride. Many Jews would give a funeral service to their son if he married a Gentile woman. Jews were not permitted to aid in the birth of a Gentile woman's baby because they were seen as bringing another Gentile into the world. The Jews would often shake the dust off of their feet if they had to travel through Samaria or another location that was full of Gentiles. John MacArthur said, quote, In fact, the Jew thought the Gentiles were created by God for fuel to use in hell. They thought that only Israel was loved of God and all other nations were hated. They were separated from the covenant privileges. God had had these covenants, these promises that He gave to the nation of Israel. Yet the Gentiles had no part of this outside of Christ. They were considered to be strangers, as the text says. Strangers. Interestingly enough, this word stranger means alien or foreigner. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes them as this, saying, quote, They can read their Bible and it does not move them. They can look at these exceeding great and precious promises and say, To whom does this apply? What is all this about? They are strangers. They are like people from another country. They do not understand the language. If you've ever traveled abroad and You've been trying to understand what in the world people are saying when you're in a cafe or when you're in some uh, city center and you don't speak the language and you feel like you're all alone. You feel like you're far off from understanding anything. In essence, the Gentiles who were far off before their salvation through Jesus Christ were strangers and aliens and did not understand the, the language of grace. But there's a transition here. In verses 13 to 22, we see that Paul is not only talking about the past tense of the Gentiles before their salvation, but then he brings to light, if you will, to surface the fact that they had been saved by God and united to God's people. In fact, reconciliation is a theme throughout this whole entire paragraph. 
Reconciliation is a very important doctrine in Scripture. Ever since the Garden of Eden, humanity has stood in need to be reconciled both to God and to fellow man. That was true regarding Adam and Eve and their offspring. It was true of Abraham and God. It was true of God and His people Israel. It was true of the differing tribes among the people of Israel. It was true of the Jews and Gentiles in the local church. So be reminded... We stand in need of reconciliation in our present day. And there's an awful lot of talk about racial reconciliation. But unfortunately, the racial reconciliation is oftentimes fueled by these ideas and the ideology of social justice. I just want to go ahead and tell you, you can't get there from here. You're not going to make people and force unity upon people outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will not happen. And so I just want to ask this honest question before we go into this section. I just want to ask, is there anything that's too big for the Bible? Is there any controversy that's too big for Scripture? Is there anything in, in this world that we could ever face, including social justice, that may be too big for the sufficient Word of God? So while we may be champions of inerrancy, we must likewise be champions of sufficiency. We have a sufficient Bible. Now Paul, what he does here in this section is in verse 13, he points to the fact that the Gentiles had been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus. Look at verse 13 and notice the language. In verse number 13, he he speaks about uh, this idea of but now. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones that said he loves all of the buts in the Bible. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not social justice, not reparation ideas and ideology, nothing like that, not even political maneuvering, but by the blood of Christ. This is a wonderful truth. By the way, if you're in this room tonight and you're a brother or sister with me in in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near to God through the blood of Jesus. Not through rituals, not through religion, not through conferences, not through church attendance. And if you haven't bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to turn to Him. He is your only hope. Only through Christ Jesus can you be reconciled to God. So there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. But not only reconciliation to God, then he speaks about reconciliation of the Gentiles to God's people. In verse 14, there is a transition from you to us. Notice the language there. In verse 13, he and previously he had been saying you, you, you who once were. Now in verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is a wonderful truth. Now, you have to understand, Paul understood well that Jesus loves His church. And Paul loved the church. And by the way, founders, one of the things that that excites me about being a, a partner and a friend of Founders Ministries is that they are champions and they stand firm on the gospel, but they are churchmen. They love the local church. Paul was no different. He loved the local church. And notice how Paul shifts from that you to us and he includes himself in the equation. And again, such unity cannot be achieved apart from the gospel. We must remember how the temple was, how it was structured. Remember the the temple worship of the Jewish people There were the different courts, the court of the priests. Only male members of the tribe of Levi were permitted to enter the court of the priests. Then you have the court of Israel, and only male Jews were permitted to to enter that court. Then you had the court of women, and any Jew could enter that court, but no woman could go beyond that point. But then five steps downward from that level of the Jewish courtyards was a five-foot-high stone barrier that extended around the temple enclosure. And then another step down, 14 steps down, to a level and to a courtyard known as the Court of the Gentiles. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, 
No foreigner was permitted to enter the Jewish enclosures upon penalty of death. In fact, there was an inscription on the very wall that read as follows. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. No foreigner. Gentiles. Far off. The Jews had a literal wall of separation, but they likewise had an invisible wall, one in their hearts. Again, it was well known that the Jews back in this particular culture, they they believed that God loves Israel alone of all the nations. They believed that, that God would judge Gentiles with one measure and the Jews with another. They had become so wrapped up in their ordinances and within their legalistic structures that they literally believed, and it's quoted uh, throughout history, that they would believe things such as the fact that Abraham would sit beside the gates of hell and would not permit any wicked Israelite to go through it. Paul understood that sort of ideology. He understood the division well. He was a Jew. And yet, Paul understood that the people of God had been brought together by Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. Therefore, the church is unlike any other organization or any other group on planet earth. What precious unity we enjoy in the church. Willing to defend one another. Pray with one another. Love one another. Carry one another's burdens. Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And if need be, Not only stand together, but die together or die for one another. That should be the the way that the church is described. That should be the characteristics of the church. But through social justice today, the exact opposite is taking place. Social justicians and social justice warriors demand that we bow the knee to social justice. They claim that we're going to be left behind if we don't get on the train. That if we want to be accepted... That if we want to be cool and sexy and hip, and if we want to be successful, then we're going to have to get on this train called social justice. I don't believe that's true at all. Social justice is one of the most devious, divisive, dangerous movements in modern church history. They force unity. Outside of the gospel. They twist biblical justice into something that's a social construct. On the framework of postmodernism. In an interview with Elizabeth Woodson in a recent conference, Ekamini Uwan stated the following. Listen to what she states. Because we have to understand something, she says, whiteness is wicked. It is wicked. It is, it's rooted in violence. It's rooted in theft. It's rooted in plunder. It's rooted in power and privilege. That was just one little statement out of a very long interview. It was full of all of that. One of the most troubling things about that was not just what she said, but what other leaders in evangelical circles today said after she said that. Including Thabiti Anyabwile, who tweeted out that she got it right. And he didn't just say that she got it right casually. He said he had to think about every word that she said. So he read it very carefully and then tweeted out that she got it right. This language was popularized by Peggy McIntosh, who published her ideas of systemic racism in her work titled White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, where she wrote the following. Quote, I think whites are carefully taught to are not to recognize white privilege, as males are taught not to recognize male privilege. So I have begun, in an untutored way, to ask what it is like to have white privilege. White privilege is like an invisible weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks, end quote. I don't know about you, but I didn't grow up in that world. I mean, my dad taught me get up and go to work early on. 
I, I would argue I'm, I'm trying to run cross country and track and get a scholarship and the baseball players, their parents buy them and football players, their parents buy them a vehicle when they turn 16 so that they can just focus on getting that scholarship. So maybe, Dad, you should think about maybe buying my vehicle too. And he said, son, you go to work and you buy a vehicle and you drive it to school and then you run cross country and track and then you come home and study and then you get your scholarship. I didn't grow up in this idea of just privilege where things were just given to me. And I certainly didn't go to school and college and then in uh, later seminary and just have people just hand me degrees. I mean, you have to actually get up and work for things. But these, that this idea that's being pressed upon us is this false idea that just because you're born with less melanin than others, that you have privileges that you can just sort of just sail through life. That is not true. Now, there has been, and we must acknowledge that there has been a time in American history where there were Jim Crow laws. There were, there was slavery. It was horrific. And we should acknowledge that. We should be honest about that. But we should not buy into the fact that there is still today a system that is rigged against people who have a darker skin tone than us, that might not have as dark of a skin tone. And then that's not just true in the political sphere, but it's also true in the evangelical church where people are saying things like, well, because you're white, then you have privilege within the evangelical circles unlike others who don't have white skin. Interestingly enough, Timothy Isaiah Cho on Easter tweeted these words out. Quote, Denying the bodily resurrection of Christ is a refusal to believe women of color. Confessing the bodily resurrection of Christ is treasuring the testimony of women of color. He is risen, says, we believe you, women who bring us good news of Christ. I tweeted out, can we just have one day, like just one day where we don't try to do this, this whole thing of confusing the gospel and social justice? Intersectionality. 1989, Kimberly Crenshaw, a political activist and feminist, tried to help aid the oppressed groups in America by coming up with this idea known as intersectionality to spotlight victim categories. That if you're a woman in America, you're oppressed. If you're a black woman in America, you're a member of two different victim categories. If you're a black woman who's a homosexual, then you are a member of three victim categories, and where all of those categories align and intersect is the most opportune place of discrimination and oppression and is really at the heart of who that individual is. But if you follow the ideas of intersectionality, you find that there's now a website dedicated to helping us find out what our score is. (laughs) Intersectionalityscore.com And if you go to the website, you're going to find out that if you're black, gay, transgender woman who is poor and elderly and disabled and speaks English as the second language, born outside of the United States, who is uneducated and is a devout Muslim, who is friendly to Jews, is the most oppressed person in the United States of America. According to the definition of intersectionality, We have to figure out how to help victim groups. As you can imagine, this is big business for politicians. That's why Elizabeth Warren is a U.S. senator from Massachusetts who was born in Oklahoma and has recently tried to self-identify as an American Indian because she wanted to gain the sympathy points and political advancement due to her victim category until it was discovered that she's actually just a white woman from Oklahoma. But now she's running for the presidency in 2020. And if you visit her website, surprise, surprise, she's chopping on and talking on about social justice. It's the rage of the day. As a direct result of all of this sort of language, multi-ethnic, multicultural, diverse, minority-led churches and POC hashtags have become more than just hashtags. They've become marketing opportunities and pragmatic tools for social justice warriors. Intersectionality has convinced many within evangelicalism to replace theology with victimology and to swap pastors with sociologists, to trade theologians for political activists. 
But I just want to go on record as stating that we're never going to be unified in the church of Jesus Christ through social justice. We must come together as brothers and sisters in Christ in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when Paul wanted to remind the Jews and Gentiles of their unity, he doesn't come preaching the gospel of intersectionality. He doesn't come preaching the gospel of reparations or the gospel of critical race theory or the gospel of identity politics. Instead, he makes a beeline to the cross of Jesus Christ. In verse 16, you'll see here that we read that Jesus brought Jew and Gentile together through the ministry of the cross. When we think about the cross, we think about Jesus was crucified. The crucifixion was invented by the Persians. It was practiced by the Phoenicians and the Egyptians. And it was perfected by the Romans. By the time that Jesus was nailed to the Roman cross, over 30,000 individuals had been crucified up to that very moment. The Romans referred to the cross as the infamous stake. J.C. Ryle said the following, quote, The sufferings described in it, talking about the crucifixion, would fill our minds with mingled horror and compassion if they had been inflicted on one who was only a man like ourselves. But when we reflect that the sufferer was the eternal Son of God, we are lost in wonder and amazement. That's why Isaac Watts wrote, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. You see, it was the the ministry of Jesus on the cross, verse 16, that brought Jew and Gentile together together. But you think about the cross, the pain of the crucifixion would be unbearable. In our day, we wear crosses as jewelry. In Jesus' day, crosses were people. In our day, the cross isn't shameful. In Jesus' day, it was the ignominious, shameful torture post. In our day, the cross is a mere symbol. But in Jesus' day, the cross was a torture device. And consider the pain, if you will, of crucifixion. Every moment, every movement signaled pain to the human brain. Movement was necessary in order to breathe, to push yourself up, to get another breath. Slashed flesh and open wounds pressing against the rough wooden beams. The joints of the human body stretched and pressed almost out of joint. Naked body hanging shamefully before the people. No pain medication to dull the intensity. With every heartbeat thumping, there was pain that was growing greater. Part of his beard ripped out of his face. Dry spit clinging to the whiskers of his beard. Blood running from his brow into his eyes. There was emotional pain. Mocked by the Jewish people. Mocked by the Jewish leaders. Mocked by the Roman guards. On his right hand there was a criminal. On his left hand there was a criminal. And above as he looked to the sky, it was his father now separated from him for the first time in all of of eternity past. Co-equal and co-eternal with the father and now separation because of the sin of all of his people. Spurgeon said it was midnight at midday. And he was being crushed by the Father, Isaiah 53.10. And he was dying so that souls would be saved and sin would be forgiven and hearts would be cleansed and lives transformed and guilt removed and condemnation lifted and righteousness granted. Eternal life imparted, the wrath of God Satisfied, The judgment of God would be fulfilled. The penalty of sin would be paid. And all possibility of hell would be abolished forever to any and all who would bow their knee to Jesus Christ, to all of His elect. So we must avoid the trappings of social justice. When you see the words of Paul here to the church in Ephesus, Jew and Gentile brought together through the ministry of Jesus on the cross. Preacher brother... If your ministry is not built on the framework of expository preaching, 
then soon enough you're going to find yourself off in the high weeds of social justice and cultural trends and marketing gimmicks and political trappings and theological error. Preach the word line by line, precept upon precept, word by word, phrase by phrase, pericope by pericope. Point people to Jesus Christ. That is exactly what Paul does here. He points people to Jesus. You see that in verse 16, coming together in the ministry of the cross. Jerry Bridges once said, it is at the cross where God's law and God's grace are both most brilliantly displayed. Where His justice and His mercy are both glorified. But it is also at the cross where we are most humbled. It is at the cross, he says, where we admit to God and to ourselves that there is absolutely nothing we can do to earn or merit salvation. In verse number 17, he speaks about both Jew and Gentile needing the gospel. In verse 18, he speaks about the fact that both Jew and Gentile have the same spirit. In verses 19 through 22, he speaks about the fact that in Christ there is no alien, there is no stranger brought near to God. All members of the household of faith, the church of Jesus is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. What a glorious picture. What a glorious picture. The gospel transcends above politics. The gospel transcends above geographic lines and socioeconomic groups and gender categories. Jesus saves the red, the yellow, the black, the white, the circumcised, the uncircumcised, the educated, the uneducated, the male, the female, the bond, the free. Any and all who bow their knee to Jesus Christ will be saved and not only reconciled to God, but then find unity together in the gospel, in the church. Years ago, there was a great thinker, a brilliant thinker, and a theologian nearing the end of his life. And there was a young man who approached him and asked him a question and said, said, Sir, what is the most brilliant thought that has ever gone through your mind? And he was expecting some, you know, fabulous nuance of the atonement or perhaps the doctrine of the Trinity. This brilliant older theologian with his face to the ground, contemplating the question, looks up with tears streaming down his face, looked into the face of this young man and said, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. We sing about it. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. But there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. There may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. No matter how bad it gets with this controversy of social justice, no matter what they say about you, no matter what sort of accusation they hurl towards you with whatever hashtag it might be on Twitter, just remember, stand firm. We are to do justice, but it's not so that God will do grace. We are to do justice out of a response to the God who has been gracious to save vile sinners through the blood of His Son. The march to victory within the controversy of social justice is not merely a Twitter war or a blog battle. We must out-preach the social justice warriors. We must stand firm without blushing upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a sufficient Bible. Stand firm. We have a superior message. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves sinners, reconciles sinners to God. There's no one so vile that God could not reconcile them. 
And this superior message will unify the church of Jesus Christ. Many people have looked at Tom Askell representing Founders Ministries and have looked at me representing the G3 Ministries. And I've asked this question, what in the world are you doing? Risking everything that you have worked for in this issue, this thing, this controversy called social justice. Don't you understand what you're risking? I just want to say, it's no risk at all. I've read the end of the story. I know who wins. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So come what may, in the words of Luther, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And the gospel is worthy of a stand. Don't just sit back. Don't just be quiet. Speak up. Speak up with humility. Speak up with resolve. But nevertheless, speak up. I conclude with the words of Luther who once said this to a group of pastors. Quote, Some pastors and preachers are lazy and no good. They do not pray. They do not read. They do not search the scripture. The call is watch, study, attend to reading and truth. You cannot read too much in scripture. And what you read, you cannot read too carefully. And what you read carefully, you cannot understand too well. And what you understand well, you cannot teach too well. And what you teach well, you cannot live too well. The devil, the world, and our flesh are raging and raving against us. Therefore, dear sirs and brothers, pastors and preachers, pray, read, study, be diligent. This evil, shameful time is not the season for being lazy, for sleeping, and for snoring. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless you.